Amen. One of the things that has impressed me as I have learned more about the crusade is the elaborate follow-up that is attempted, at least, to be put in place. It depends upon us. But there is a very fine program that begins, actually, with the counselor himself or herself on the very night that they counsel with someone after the, the call, the altar call, is made. And then there are Bible studies that are uh, organized through local churches, and uh, materials are given out, letters are sent out, and so uh, it's really a very thorough job, and I've been impressed with that. And I want to thank all of you who've been a part of helping us as a church to get up to speed for the crusade and especially for the Christian Life and Witness classes. Irv Carlson and a whole team of people working with him did an outstanding job getting, uh, getting us ready week by week for five weeks to host 900 to 1,100 people that came for that training. So thank you very much, uh, those of you who worked, and for all of you who came either to this location or to one of the other locations to be trained to counsel. Now, that's something that will stick with us uh, long after the, the crusade is over, the, the kinds of tools that we learn to use in those classes. And so I hope that, that we'll keep that in mind and continue to be used of the Lord uh, long after Billy Graham has left our city. Now, in light of the fact that this is the Sunday when we have emphasized the Billy Graham crusade, we're going to take a break for today from the book of Colossians and go to the Gospel of John, to the first chapter. I invite you to turn there in the Word of God with me, where we will begin reading in the 35th verse. Some of you may be familiar with an organizational observation that might be called the, the Peter Principle. Now, the Peter Principle really wasn't named after the Apostle Peter, although some people think that. It was named after the person who actually stated it and put it down, but the idea of the Peter Principle is simply that people in an organization tend to rise to the level of their incompetence. And uh, if you have worked in an organization, you probably have seen examples of that. Well, this morning I don't want to talk about the Peter Principle. I want to talk about the Andrew Principle. I want you to discover with me in our study of the Word of God what the Andrew Principle is, because it is illustrated in the experience of the disciple Andrew, who was one of the very first followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle's purpose in writing the Gospel of John is found in the 20th chapter in the 31st verse where he says, These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. With that purpose in mind, John picked up the pen to write about the life of Jesus. By the superintending work of the Holy Spirit, John recorded selected materials from the life of Jesus, in order to persuade his readers of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that believing that truth, they might have life in Jesus' name. Here in the first 
chapter of John alone, he gives seven titles to the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 1, he calls him the Word. In chapter 1, verse 23, he calls him the Lord. In verse 29, the Lamb of God. And again in verse 36. In verse 34, he gives Jesus the title, the Son of God. And again in verse 49. In verse 41, he calls him the Messiah, or the Christ. In verse 49, the King of Israel. And in the last verse of the chapter, he gives the title to Jesus, the Son of Man. This gospel is about Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he did on our behalf. The gospel opens with a prologue that introduces to us the Word. The Word is Jesus Christ, who it is said was God, who became flesh and lived among us, in order that he might reveal the invisible God to us. After giving his introduction, John then proceeds with a narrative. He opens with the witness of John the baptizer to who Jesus was. And he tells us, as he tells about John, how the first followers came to follow Jesus. Now we marvel at the humility and the understanding of John the Baptist regarding his mission. He begins in verse 19 by saying, and this is the witness of John. John was preaching for the Lord out in the wilderness of Judea, baptizing in the Jordan River with a baptism of repentance of sin. And because of the stir his ministry was causing, the religious leaders in Jerusalem sent a delegation out into the wilderness to find this rather strange man. And having found him, they said, Who are you? And, G and John said, Well, I'm, I'm not Elijah. And I'm not the prophet, and I'm not the Christ, but John said, verse 23, I am a voice. I'm a voice. Notice the humility of this man. He says, I am a voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah predicted. I would. John knew who he was, and John knew why he was in the world. These same people said, well, John, why are you baptizing if you're not someone who's important? And John answered in verse 26, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. 
John knew who he was. He knew he was the forerunner of Jesus. That he was sent by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. To cultivate the hearts of the people of Israel so that the Messiah might come and sow the truth of God. He said, I am a voice. And as a voice crying in the wilderness, he witnessed to Jesus. He declared the identity of Jesus. The next day after this delegation from Jerusalem had questioned him, it says that John saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He identified Jesus. He says in verse 30, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And yet we know from the record of Luke that John actually was born first. And yet John says, He existed before me, a testimony to the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. He existed eternally before John. Then in verse 34, John says, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Notice the understanding of the mission that characterized this humble prophet. And as Jesus came onto the scene, John's humility is further evidenced by the fact that he sent his followers after Jesus. We see this not only in the text that we're going to read, but we see it in chapter 3. And verse 22 where it says, After these things Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. And John also was baptizing in Anan near Salem, because there was much water there and they were coming and were being baptized. John had not yet been thrown into prison. There arose, therefore, a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have borne witness, that's Jesus, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John said, A man can receive nothing unless it be given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's Jesus. But the friend of the bridegroom, that's John, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And so this joy of mine has been made full. And then look at this statement. He must increase but I must decrease. Here is a man who has been significant on the scene of Israel, howbeit for only a few months. And yet pride has no place in his life. He says, I must decrease. 
he must increase. John was not a follower of Jesus. Not that he didn't know who he was and didn't believe, but John was an Old Testament prophet, the greatest of them. He was not a follower of Jesus, but he was the forerunner of Jesus. He played a unique role in the plan of God. You and I need to be like John. We need to understand that God has a role for us. It's not to be John the Baptist. I'm glad. I enjoy my head. But we have a role. And we will fulfill that role as we also have a spirit that says, He must increase. I must decrease. Now, going back to chapter 1, John gives us some insight as to how Jesus' first followers came to him. And here we note the means by which people became followers of Jesus. It says in verse 35, again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The same statement as the day before, abbreviated, but the same statement. And this time Jesus is not walking toward John. Jesus is apparently walking by. And John is standing with two of his disciples, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed him. They understood what John was saying. He was pointing to Jesus. And the two of them began then to follow Jesus. And Jesus turned and beheld them following and said to them, What do you seek? Notice he doesn't ask, Whom do you seek? They were to understand that, but Jesus asked them, What is it you are seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is translated teacher, where are you staying? You see, they answered with a question. The question really implies, we want to come and spend time with you. We want to be with you. We declare that you are a teacher, a rabbi, a respected scholar of the law. We want to be with you. Where are you staying? And Jesus said to them, come. Come and you will see. And they came, therefore, and saw where he was staying. Now, we don't know where that was. It may have been a simple structure made out of cloth or out of palm branches, a temporary place, undoubtedly. And Jesus invites them to come and to spend time with him. And John notes that it was about the tenth hour, which in John's reckoning of time means about four o'clock in the afternoon. And so it's implied here that they spent the evening and the night with Jesus. Wouldn't you like to have been a part of that conversation? To know what Jesus said to these men who were beginning to follow him. And then John, who is the apostle now, remember you have to keep straight, John the Baptist and John the apostle. John, who's writing this, says, One of the two who heard John the Baptist speak and followed him was Andrew. 
Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. And so the uh, text suggests to us that the next day, the very next day, after having spent some time with Jesus, Andrew and whoever it was with him, and by the way, it's most likely that it was John who's writing this. John does never identify himself in his writing. He is a man who defers, who, who is reserved. And so he always refers to himself in some hidden way, some third-person way. And most likely it was John who's writing this, who was with Andrew that night with Jesus. And it says that it was Andrew who first found his own brother. Now, exactly what that means, we don't know, because it, the language allows room for two or three different interpretations. It could be that it means that this was a priority to Andrew, that first he had to find his brother before he found others. Or it could mean that Andrew and John were both going out to look for their brothers. John had a brother too. What was his name? James. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. But it was Andrew who found his brother first, not John. So it could be taken either way. The point is that Andrew, as John records it, immediately went to tell his brother. What we see in this text and a little broader text than I've read is the means by which people became followers of Jesus. First of all, they became followers of Jesus through public proclamation of a preacher. Here I'm thinking of John the Baptist who pointed to Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God! And as a result of that, his followers began to follow Jesus in time. The first two were Andrew and John. When I think of the public proclamation of a preacher and people coming to Christ, I think of people who are like Billy Graham, in particular, who are gifted as evangelists in that public proclamation way. Uh, they're able to stand before audiences and to preach the gospel with such simplicity and such power by the Holy Spirit that God uses that gift of evangelism to reveal Jesus Christ to them. And they respond to that. You and I have a, a rare opportunity next month to invite our friends to go and to hear Dr. Billy Graham. Now this will be probably the second to the last of his crusades. His last one will be in Charlotte this fall. It's a historic occasion, because after preaching Christ now for some 40 years, his voice in a crusade setting will no longer ring across America. But it's a, it's a unique opportunity also, simply because he is a messenger from God. And he is one who, like John the Baptist and many, many others down through the history of the church, have publicly proclaimed Christ. And God uses that to bring people to himself, even as we have heard this morning in testimonies. 
Andrew, and John began to follow the Lord as a result of John the Baptist's ministry of public proclamation. Secondly, we see a personal call of Christ. We didn't read all the way to verse 43, but you notice in verse 43, it says, The next day Jesus purposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. And so here we have the personal call of Christ. There, there doesn't seem to be any human intermediary. It's just the Lord Jesus coming to this man and calling him to follow himself. And I think here of those people who come to Christ through the impersonal means that are available today of television and radio and gospel tracts and videos, where there isn't another person necessarily. Obviously, people have prepared these tools and so on. But through the proclamation of the message in an impersonal means, Jesus Christ just directly speaks to the heart and the person begins to follow Christ. But then we have a third means by which people become followers of Jesus. And that's in our text where we have Andrew going to Peter, his brother. Somebody said this is the best service that Andrew rendered to the church. Andrew was a wonderful man. And when we see him in the scriptures, he's often some sort of intermediary that's bringing people to Jesus. Being a little boy with uh, loaves and fishes, or if it be the Greeks who came to see Jesus, Andrew is people who's always just ushering people into the presence of Jesus. He's a wonderful man. But his brother, probably his older brother, far outshines him in church history. For this, of course, is Peter who would stand on the day of Pentecost on behalf of the Lord and the church that was being born and preach the gospel and 3,000 would be saved. And he was the one who was used of God to go to Cornelius and there in Cornelius' household opened the door to the Gentiles of the world to be saved without having to become Jews in the process. The gospel was for Gentiles as well as Jews. And Peter was a great, great servant of Christ. And here we have Andrew doing his part in that. The best service he rendered to the church was to bring his brother to Christ. Andrew didn't know that, of course. Andrew knew his brother. And apparently Peter was not a strong man. We think of him being impetuous, and he was. But he was not a strong man. He was, he was like water in some respect. But Jesus said, you know, you're going to be a rock. Isn't that amazing? Jesus was able to look into Peter and see him for what he could become, not for what he was at that moment. He said, you're going to be a rock. Peter. Andrew didn't understand what that meant, nor did Peter, undoubtedly, at that point. But just think of what service Andrew rendered, what, what an effect his life had because he went to his brother Peter. 
And you and I witness to people, and we invite people to go to the crusade, and we give tracts out, and we have no idea what this person is going to become, or what God has in mind for that one. Charles Kimball had no idea that that little boy, in uh, not a little boy, but a teenager in his Sunday school class, in that church, uh, would ever become the great evangelist Dwight L. Moody. He just decided that this young lad needed the Lord pretty badly, and so he went down to the bookstore, and as history tells it, he, he went into the bookstore and he, he, he got scared, and so he went back out in the street, and then he decided he'd go back in. And he went back in, he was finally able to corner Dwight Moody, and he witnessed to him, and as a result of that, Moody came to faith in Christ. He was just a teenager. That's all he was, just a teenager. And yet, as a result of Kimball's simple witness as a Sunday school teacher to a boy in his class, indirectly he shook England and Ireland and Scotland and America with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And after looking at this text and some of the observations that arise out of it, I want to return to this idea of the Andrew Principle. And here's what I believe the Andrew Principle is. Most often, people become followers of Jesus when they are brought to him by a person they know. Now, that's nothing real profound, is it? but it's very important. Most often, people come to Christ, become followers of His, when they are brought by a person that they know. We don't have time to go on and read about how Philip went and found Nathaniel and said, we found the Messiah, and Nathaniel became a believer. When the invitation is given in June at the crusade, it will be Billy Graham who's done the preaching. But it will be you and me who've acted as Andrew. And we have said to people that we know, whether it be a brother, as in the case with Andrew and Peter, or whether it be a friend, as in the case with Philip and Nathaniel, if there are people who come forward in that crusade, most of them will come forward because they've had a relationship with you and me. And on the basis of that, they said, sure, I'll go. I'll go. I'll be a part of it. I'll, I'll go and see what he has to say. The Andrew principle is that most people become followers of Jesus when they are brought to him by a person that they know. And my challenge to you this morning is this. Will you apply the Andrew principle to your life, especially in these coming weeks? I know that some of you have been praying for friends. Some of you filled out a card that we called Operation Andrew, in which you have... Uh, over the last week, been praying for specific individuals, asking God to prepare their hearts and to give you the opportunity to invite them to come. 
Now, even if you haven't been doing that, it's not too late to say, Lord, I want to follow the Andrew principle. And as Andrew first sought out his brother and brought him to Jesus, so who is it that God would have you to seek out to bring to Jesus? You say, well, that's a, a, a scary thing to do. Well, not really. It's only scary because we're afraid that we'll be rejected. That's not much of a reason, is it, for not obeying the Lord? I think it was uh, D.T. Niles who first said, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. So when you are inviting someone to go to the crusade or you're witnessing to them yourself, all you're doing is helping them understand how to find what you found in Christ. There's not a more loving thing that you can do than that. There's not a more important thing that you can do than that. And remember that as you witness and as you invite and as you counsel at the crusade, that person you're talking to may not look like much. That person may not have much value in the world's terms. But Jesus knows what the potential of that life is. And every single person is important in his eyes. And every single one has a meaning, has a purpose. And so remember that as you're dealing with this person, you're dealing with someone who's filled with potential that Jesus knows about, and you're simply bringing them to him that they then might open their hearts and receive him, and he can save them from sin. And he then can fill their lives with meaning and direction and purpose. We live in a world that has, has lost this sense of meaning and purpose for a lot of reasons. We live in a world that is filled with sin and there's very little guilt, it seems, about that. Very little sense of lostness, very little fear of God. But as you and I will share the gospel, as you and I will invite others to go with us, God can use that to begin Pricking the heart with conviction, probing within to show the emptiness, drawing them out to seek after the Lord. But most often, that will happen with people that you and I have a relationship with. There will be a few Williams who will be caught in the traffic and won't like it and will end up in there. And without human intermediary, God will speak to them. But most of them will come and be there and respond because we've cared enough to obey the Andrew principle. I'd like you to bow with me in prayer. And I want to ask you to pray in your own heart. And say, Lord Jesus, I want to be like Andrew. And based upon the Andrew principle, 
Lord, lay some soul upon my heart. And love that soul through me. And Lord, may I ever do my part to win that soul for thee. Is there someone or some several who come to your mind right now? I hope so. Lord Jesus, I pray that we, after spending time with you, as did Andrew and John, will immediately go out, obeying this principle, and seek to bring others to you, that you may do in their lives what you have done in our lives. Stir us with compassion to care and courage to take action. I'd like you to stand with me, please, with our heads bowed. And let's sing together a chorus the one I just quoted that says, Lord, lay some soul upon my heart. Lord, lay some soul upon my heart and love that soul to me and something that we'll all be ready to participate in. May none of us, Lord, look back upon it later and say, oh, if only I had done this or that, if only I had invited, if only I had. God, I pray that we will be ready, spiritually and in every way, to do our part in obeying the Andrew principle. In Jesus' name, amen. We're dismissed.